Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Hello, I'm Zoe Ragusios, and I am the host of the final episode in our series, Creating Environments for Flourishing, based on the paper of the same name released by the Mary Christie Foundation and Georgetown University. I am the Executive Director of Counseling and Wellness Services at New York University and the President of the Mary Christie Foundation. Flourishing is defined as a state of vigorous and healthy growth, the opposite of which is languishing. Today, we talk with two college presidents about the role of higher education leadership in improving opportunities for flourishing in young people. The president of Ithaca College, Shirley Collado, and the president of Georgetown University, John DeJoya, also known as Jack. Jack and Shirley, welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you so much, Zoe. Great to be with you, Shirley. Same here. Great to be with you both. So before we get started, I wanted to mention that this conversation was taped Monday of last week, November 2nd, the day before the election. Creating Environments for Flourishing was based on a set of convenings with higher education leaders such as yourselves who met over the last year at Georgetown. Jack, you led both of those convenings and Shirley, you and your team attended both. As a result of those conversations, we identified five opportunities for flourishing that starts with the role of leadership in committing higher education to the flourishing of young adults. Jack, why is flourishing such an important goal for college students? And might I add, is this even more important now given all that students are experiencing? Thank you so much for the question and for your great leadership, Zoe. Flourishing as a concept has ancient roots and modern developments. The ancient roots go all the way back to Aristotle, the idea that we share as humans the pursuit of eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is the Greek word for happiness or flourishing. And it's best understood as when the elements that distinguish our humanity come together in an integrated way and with a sense of wholeness. Aristotle and, and those that followed eudaimonia, flourishing, that these distinctive characteristics of our humanity, our ability to reason, to form friendships and families, to create beauty, to act with a sense of moral responsibility, an ability to embrace a transcendent reality. These are elements that are distinctly human. And when they're in balance, we can experience ourselves at our very best. And the best word for that, Aristotle had it all those years ago, eudaimonia, flourishing. In modern times, we're all so lucky to be alive when such important new work over the course of you know, the last quarter century in positive psychology and understanding the conditions for flow, for happiness, for strengthening our resiliency, and even our grasp of our own biology, specifically the insights that have emerged in neuroscience. What unfolds during the college years, which, what takes place on our campuses, is the work of formation. And this is the process through which each of us seeks to establish the terms to be our most authentic selves. And when we can do this, this is flourishing. In universities, we build it around knowledge, but we also have unparalleled resources for enabling students to make meaning in their lives. These resources have been held by universities for a millennium, the humanities, the liberal arts. And 
that combination, well, I don't think the idea has ever been more important than it is right now for us to celebrate the flourishing of our young people. Thanks, Jack. Shirley, I wanted to give you a moment to comment as well. And Jack talked about meaning, and we know that inclusion and belonging are also so important to mental health and flourishing. How do you think that fits into an overall flourishing approach? Sure. Thanks, Zoe. And I I think Jack just described this in such a beautiful and vibrant way, not only rooted in history, but how that transcends now to contemporary American higher education. And I, I would just add, I'm so grateful that we're thinking about flourishing. Others have used the term thriving. I love this idea of flourishing, which is in line with a lot of what Susan Sturm, a law scholar at Columbia University, has defined or described as full participation. And, you know, when I think about the role of our institutions and this idea of really putting flourishing not just in concept, but in practice, I think it begs the question, if we really want everyone to belong and to really be seated at the table, that part of the accountability that we hold in allowing flourishing to truly take place for all is our ability to look at our conditions in the academy, to look in the mirror and really think about, yes, there's power in all that we've done historically in higher ed, but there are also truths in terms of people that we've historically left out of the work that we've done. And so now I think that today demands of us a a real sense of responsibility in how we need to shift and change to really produce a real authentic ability for our students to be who they really are, to be seen as assets, coming to us to not only find their own ability to flourish, but allowing our institutions to do the same in in a relationship that I think, frankly, is going to look very differently than some of our past. Thank you. In the paper, we talk about what it takes to create environments for flourishing, and some include a commitment from leadership, the use of innovation, opening up communities of support, In other words, not making mental health the sole responsibility of the counseling service. And then, of course, assessment. Jack, what do you think are the most important of these? And what do you think are the most challenging? Yeah, and I think it's a terrific question, Zoe. And perhaps I could also just pick up a little bit on the themes that Shirley was just describing. Yes, of course. I I think this question about inclusion and belonging, which are so important to mental health and flourishing, I place this under the rubric of formation. The work of formation takes place in a community, and and a community provides the framework for inclusion and belonging. And the the work of formation is deeply personal and requires trust and intimacy. If we're going to explore the deepest questions, the ones that will lead us to a deeper understanding of ourselves, of what will constitute authenticity in our lives, Well, this work requires rich, intimate conversation, and we need to be in places of trust. And a goal for each of our communities, you want to be able to pursue these deep, intimate, interpersonal relationships across our differences that we can work through the blocks to such intimacy. And if we can help sustain a sense of belonging, this important work can take place. And to your point, This does require a whole university approach, a whole community approach. We will never be able to address some of the challenges that define this moment through our counseling centers alone or even through 
some of our special initiatives that, that are designed to try to address the needs of our young people right now. We've seen all of this from this virtual learning environment that many of us have been in for the last, last several months. The, the role of our faculty has never been more important in the lives of our students than it is right now. And I think we're, we're going to come out of this having had a set of experiences that we can draw from that will enrich the, the ways in which we approach this in a whole university, a whole community approach. Thank you. Shirley, do you have any thoughts on which are the most challenging elements or which ones are the most important? Well, I think I would add that we know that our communities are interdependent and interconnected with the society and the communities in which our institutions reside. And for those of us, I think many of us certainly are committed to the idea of no longer being ivory towers or colleges on the hill but really understanding our role in the public good. And so to that, I would add, you know, as we're facing one of the most historical elections in American history, along with what we've been managing with the public health crisis, this pandemic, and the rise of so much hard work on race relations in America, so much of the challenge and the hope, Zoe, comes with us fully acknowledging that our students are right now navigating multiple realities. And so much has been exposed during this time around issues of real equity. So when we think about flourishing, belonging, and what's most challenging, I think it's challenging to meet a very diverse student body with a variety of needs and realities. And now literally, they're all over the country and world while we're trying to feel connected, right? And while these huge forces including the impact of climate change and all that we're facing, is that play in the lives of our students and the lives of institutions. So like Jack said, you know, I think in some ways our staff and our faculty have risen in ways that we never imagined possible. And I think students are doing the same. So the grit, the resiliency, a lot of the assets that we talk about we, that we know are alive and well in so many students, I think are being tested in, in new ways right now that actually I think could add some hope if you will, some things that will stick that we could do more of and embrace more of as we move beyond this time. Zoe, if I could just add one more dimension to this. You mentioned that the convenings that Shirley and I and you were all part of over the last year, you know, we've kind of lost a little bit of perhaps focus overall because of the pandemic. But one reason for those convenings was just the, the, the sheer challenges that our young people are facing today. I mean, if you think about the most common presenting challenges of anxiety and depression, and these are among the most common presenting concerns with clear growth trends over the past four or five years, you know, one in five of adolescents will have a mental illness that will persist into adulthood. We know that the onset of most mental health disorders occurs between the ages of 14 and 26. And how important it is for us on our campuses, if we can provide good first experiences for young people in, in engaging with mental health challenges, it, it can help put them on a pathway where they'll be able to manage and cope with these, these challenges you know, throughout their lives. So one of, one of the challenges that I think we, we just need to acknowledge, and this is pre-COVID and, and now only exacerbated by the pandemic, is just the significant level of anxiety and depression in young people that we've all been experiencing on our campuses in recent years. 
Yes, yes, and I'm in a really good position to agree with that. <laughs> I, no one better than you. <laughs> and also to support your comment that our role is so important to give students that first good experience. And that includes, of course, the counselors, but it includes all community stakeholders. Anybody who interacts with a student and who can put them on the right road, it has certainly done the student exactly a, a great service. And so then this begs the big question about whether flourishing can actually be taught. We've seen some pretty interesting initiatives being tried in this area in many colleges and universities. The wellness environment at UVM is a good example. Shirley, do you think flourishing can be taught? I think absolutely it can be reflected back to students in a way that can be very promising. And I think there are wonderful initiatives, as you know, from our convening that we learned a lot about. My personal take on this is the more that we normalize what is true and important for many college students and that we use a strength-based approach, whether we're talking about a center focused on first-generation college students, or how we think about orientation programs as new students enter a community, how we develop living and learning communities. These are all initiatives, right, that happen inside and outside the classroom, how freshman seminars are structured, or athletic programs. I mean, the list can go on and on. The more that we integrate this real practice and affirmation of flourishing and full participation, if you will, the more that it's embedded in all that we do in word and practice. Absolutely, I think students can see this and see themselves and see an affirmation of their greatest abilities rather than what I think we've done more historically, which is anti-flourishing, right? Is when we, we kind of place pathology and deficit on the things that often actually should be seen at times as major assets. Sometimes the students that we're paying attention to that we think need the most help, or unfortunately, we use terms like at risk or non-traditional. Those things don't work. And what works is all of our students feeling like they have a stake in a community. They have a stake in the conversation. And it's not about the majority and the other or the traditional versus the non-traditional. It's about the interconnectedness that we all have. Even if we began life in a different place perhaps with more or less privileges. That's what I think will really get us to a real healthy outlook on what it means to be a human being, especially in, a, in an academic community, regardless of the pathway that got us there. Just to compliment Billy's comment, I think one of the other dynamics we learned in some of our convenings, you know, there are habits, skills, practices. There are healthier ways of approaching each day, including getting more sleep and exercise and self-care, recognizing the importance of being in interpersonal relationships and, so, and social, social groups, if need be, if appropriate, a therapeutic relationship with, with a counselor and a counseling center, mindfulness. There are things we learned that we can share with our young people. We can introduce them to certain kinds of practices and skills and habits that just might you know, enable them to work their way through some difficult you know, difficult patches along the way. Thank you. You both mentioned the extreme challenges we're facing with COVID-19 on our campuses. I wonder if you think that there might be some silver linings in terms of our ability to create environments for flourishing. 
Or do you think that COVID-19 will significantly prohibit our ability to create those environments? I think that there are absolutely, as I said earlier, some things that can stick. The way that we've created community in the middle of all of this, especially in the classroom, but also around a lot of student engagement and wellness programs outside the classroom, I think in so many ways has educated so many of us, especially schools that have not been doing a lot of virtual or online education. Even though we have students who've negotiated some really hard circumstances, it really has affirmed, this time has affirmed that students are so eager, as our faculty and staff, by the way, to really see the added value of being in person and being connected, of, of being uh, on a college campus, how, how that can't be taken for granted. But with faced with this kind of pressure, the magnitude of what's been before us for the last several months, people rise up to the challenge and can create learning communities can can do what they need. And the way that we provided wellness programs, mental health resources, affirmations in all kinds of ways, I think has also proven how nimble and resilient both students and academic environments can be. The one thing that I do think is important to add, and it goes back to the importance of using a strengths-based approach and as Jack just reminded us, you know, the conversations we had about habits and practices we can take on. I think sometimes the students that we have deemed to be at greatest risk have proven during this time, let's say a first-generation college student, a student coming from low income or low resources, there are students who are in those categories that I think have really modeled for other students how you can negotiate very difficult circumstances during a time that's really, really hard. And that's important. That's important for all of us to see and to push the boundaries of what's happened in the classroom when you don't have students who have access to technology or the privacy of their own room where they can do work in a comfortable house. These things are real. And students negotiating work schedules with synchronous and asynchronous classes online. All of that, to me, has proven in so many ways how we can always learn so much more from each other, but that community can look very differently and strengths can look very differently when circumstances shift. And I hope that we will remember that when we are able to be together in person, in community again. I, I would just pick up on, on, on those comments, Shirley, and just say, we will never take anything for granted again. We, we, I think we always had a sense that it was very special being able to spend our lives together here in a residential university community. I think we always understood how, how, how important that was. But I, I think it's, it's never been more apparent to us just how important this opportunity is and how, how valuable it is. And I also would just pick up something I mentioned a moment ago, how much our faculty mean to our students in this virtual learning environment. I mean, it, it sometimes can get lost in the context of all the busyness and extracurricular life and social life. And right now, it's a, a very focused experience online. And the importance that our faculty play in the lives of our students could not be more important, could not be more meaningful. I also think just from a, a practical perspective, we're, we're learning, we're expanding the range of how we might think about providing support services. We've had to create a network of outside clinicians 
to augment services that we would offer here, in part because of just limitations on licensing for our own staff in our counseling in our counseling center. So we, we've been able to create a little bit more capacity out of necessity, which we might be able to then draw upon as, as we think about the future. Telehealth doesn't take the place of in-person, but it, I think we'll have a role for us as part of our framework as we go forward. Yes, and I definitely agree with that as well. There's a set of students who feel a certain amount of safety in speaking over screen who otherwise would never decide to approach a counselor at all. And so I think that this opportunity to rip off the Band-Aid and work out the kinks and allowing us to be able to offer telehealth to our students really opens a door to access. And Zoe, I'd be interested interested in your experience with this. I I know that our, our folks were a little concerned about, you know, you can pick up cues and, and insights when somebody is right with you in the room. But I think our, our folks have found that it's been pretty effective technique to be able to do, do teletherapy. It's worked much better than what we might have expected when we started eight months ago. You know, I'll say two quick things. I know I'm supposed to just be interviewing here, (laughs) but the first is, you know, the alternative at this moment in time is to be sitting in a room six feet apart with half of our faces fully covered, both the counselor and the patient. So when you think about the connection and the intimacy that's built in a counseling relationship, face-to-face is not that great either at this moment. And the other thing is there is a kind of intimacy that is built in being in each other's space. And so even clinically, we have come around to the idea as counselors that there is a a kind of connection that can be made, even just in knowing that you're both in your homes and that the patient is able to show you something of their home that they may not have been able to show you in the office, you know, and so we, we've kind of built our philosophy around the neutrality of the counseling room. And there's a lot to be said for that clinically, but this has allowed us to grapple with the alternatives. And I think it's really even clinically brought us to some interesting places. Thank you. And so any final thoughts on the subject of flourishing? Any final comments from either one? Yeah, I'd like to touch on Zoe something that we haven't mentioned that I think is really related to flourishing and the ability to really just see your full potential in a college environment. And that is how important it is for us in our leadership role to really commit to helping students see more of themselves. And by that, I mean, when we think about our amazing health and wellness staff, clinicians, faculty members, the senior leadership teams, the administrators of a college or university, is the more that students see themselves in us, real reflections of their lived experiences around race, around LGBTQ issues and gender and sexuality, first-generation college graduates, so many different kinds of backgrounds, and being able to see the kind of vulnerability and humanity that Jack and you and I have described today in, in the people who support them, who educate them, who are with them. That's a part of our commitment to flourishing as well. And it's something that I've paid close attention to that is really important to put into practice for me because this is the ways in which our institutions are being pushed to really address students and meet 
them where they are. And it's not just students of color. It's not just students who've been underrepresented. All students, right, want to see a much more diverse reflection of the world in their classrooms and in their day-to-day experiences. And that has to be a commitment on our part too. So I I didn't want to lose that point because I think it's an important one. Yes, thank you. I think it's a, a great point, Shirley. And so, so, so Zoe, the one thing I guess I'd say, you began by juxtaposing flourishing and languishing. And we've talked a little bit about some of the new resources and the, the new developments and positive psychology and happiness. I know we're all still immersed in responding to being in the midst of a pandemic. I do think we should also give some attention to anticipating what the needs are going to be in our communities when we are all back. Because another area where there are new resources available to us, and this also came up in some of our convenings, is is the deeper and deeper understanding we have about trauma and how do we meet the needs of young people who may have been subject to victims of trauma. And I think as as we come out of this, you know, we, we still have a ways to go. And I think the impact of this pandemic on each of us and on all of us is, is, a, is uncertain right now. And what we'll be confronting when we're all back in our residential or in our on-campus experiences, I, I think we've got to anticipate as we can, <laughs> recognizing we are still immersed in this, in this pandemic. But can we begin to anticipate what kinds of needs at that intersection of flourishing and and being able to respond in new ways to the kinds of challenges our young people have have confronted, I think this is a moment that's going to require our very best work. And as we work our way through these next few months, trying to anticipate what will be required of us as we come back together as communities. I I just think that's uh, such a wise point. I could not agree more. I, I think we have all been, our students as well, in the thick of working through something of enormous magnitude that I I hope our students don't have to ever experience in their lifetime. And we need to be very proactive and ready around what will our students need and what will they want us to act and respond to as we all reconnect and and come together. The the other side of this and sustaining all of these important uh, points on the other side of this is it's really important, really essential. I really appreciate Jack raising that point. Yes, and this is why these ongoing conversations are so important. And I wanted to thank you both profusely for the time you spent with us here today. And I look forward to these future conversations with you, which we all agree are so important. Thanks, Zoe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you, Zoe. Really, really an honor to be with you. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. 